Dotnet Rocks episode 614 with guests Michael Doc Norton, Dave Hoover, and Bill Pugh, recorded live at Ordev in Malmo, Sweden, Wednesday, November 10th, 2010. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here's Carl and Richard. Hi, this is Carl Franklin and Rich Campbell. We're the .NET Rocks guys and we're here at Ordev 2010 uh, speaking to a bunch of people live on the stage. And uh, Michael Doc Norton is with us. Hey, should we call you Doc? Yeah, that'd be All great. Right. How you doing? Good. Good. Lean Dog. What does Lean, Lean dog. dog do? So we are, uh, we're out of Cleveland, Ohio. Um, we do uh, agile transformations, so a lot of coaching, uh, going into organizations and helping them make the move to agile. Uh, we do some software delivery on the boat, and uh, we do a lot of learning and development. Nice. So, yeah. And you did a talk, or you're going to do a talk, on taking control of your development career? Yeah, I just did it about uh, an hour ago. Excellent. Yeah, yeah and, it went pretty uh, well. What a great topic. Where, how do you mm-hmm. tackle this problem? Well, so actually the, the talk came from kind of my own personal experience. Mm-hmm. I um, started off as an engineer, a developer, whatever title you want to give it, and uh, I kept advancing my way through the profession up to you know, director, blah, 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 CTO, and the further up I got, the uh, less happy I was on a day-to-day basis. I was dealing wow. with problems that didn't excite me and a lot more of uh, you know politics and, and that type of stuff. Management rather than development? Yeah, absolutely. I okay. was getting way too far away from what it was I wanted to do. However, um, you know, with those advancements also come some uh, pay benefits. Sure. And so my family had become accustomed to a particular lifestyle that I didn't feel I could provide as a software developer. Yeah. Um, but I was wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I, I decided to actually get back into development. I started really looking at, you know, what, what differentiates one developer from another and, you know, how can we as, as professionals in the software industry um, continue to advance ourselves and advance our pay without having to move through management track or end and, up... And there being, always seems to be know, that pressure to move to managing developers yeah. right. rather than just progress as a developer. Right, huh. right. So I looked at... Um, you know, a number of different things. Uh, I've, the presentation's a little tongue-in-cheek, but uh, I uh, equate it to uh, personal relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, we, uh, we have to get noticed. Yeah. We have to get together. We have to get our mojo going. We have <laughs> to get naked. And we have, <laughs> and we have to get schooled. Okay. okay. All right? Yeah. Not necessarily in that order? Or, uh, or no, exactly in that order? Well, in a relationship, it probably happens in that order. But when we're dealing with our own career, no, it doesn't have to be in that order okay. specifically. I laid it out that way. Um, so you know, it's 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 pretty. It's actually pretty straightforward. Um, you know, getting noticed is 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 in your existing job doing it extremely well. Mm-hmm. Um, focusing on actually what your current responsibilities are. A lot of times when we're looking to advance in our career, we uh, we start looking at that next job and trying to prove that we can do that, and right. we fail to actually execute on. You know, the our core job. responsibilities, yeah. right? And then um, making yourself expendable in that role, uh, in that in sharing information and uh, maybe automating pieces of it, et cetera, so that the value that you're offering to the company is in um, that you know the company, that you know what it is that management needs, that you right. do your existing job extremely well, and the value you're offering isn't in you have some secret sauce that nobody else knows. Right. When you said make yourself expendable, which I think an awful lot of folks in the technical side, tend to do the opposite. Yeah. Exactly. Make themselves utterly indispensable in right. their role. Through the, obscurity. Right. And the challenge right. with that is that when you are, um, when you're in that type of a position, while you have a great amount of, of power in that role, right. there is no possible way that the company can be providing you any new opportunities mm-hmm. or any new challenges. They need you to be in this niche because right. you're the only one that knows it. And the well, only you one did that it to yourself. You've successfully trapped yourself. You pigeonholed yes. yourself. Yes. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so that's, you know, that's getting, getting noticed. The programmers do this by writing some code that only they understand. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And you see it quite a bit, um, you know, and it's extremely complicated. It's very difficult to read. They know exactly how it works and no one else does. Right. So yeah, we end up getting ourselves trapped. Right. right? Yeah. And um, so the goal here, if you actually want to move upward, and, is to not be trapped, is to, to right. share your code out and make it understandable and make yourself expendable. Exactly. 
exactly in that specific role. And it doesn't necessarily even mean moving up. Maybe it means moving, you know, in a in, laterally, but into something that's a little bit more interesting, right? And which arguably is just something new, right? Just give me a new challenge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I've got a I got a buddy that works uh, at a bank, and I won't say what bank, um, but uh, he ended up in their security department, and mm -hmm. he um, really ended up architecting their dual authentication system. Um, and it worked very well, and it scaled extremely well. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a struggle for him. Once he had done that, they were uh, reluctant to move him out of that role. They they were afraid that if you know they moved him into something else, that uh, you know that something would go wrong, and they wouldn't have him at their immediate disposal. So it took him almost a year and a half to mentor other people and get to a position where he could take really a lateral move in the company, but do something new right. and something challenging yeah. and interesting for himself. Well, and how many times have we found situations where the only way for a developer to grow was to leave? Right. Yeah. Just to go somewhere else entirely. Right. Yep. And, they, right. and the company loses that resource yeah, absolutely. entirely. Absolutely. Now, that's a cultural change that companies need to start making, mm -hmm. right? So we still, still, unfortunately, in most organizations, the path for a developer is, you know, is up and out. Yeah, and uh, you know that shouldn't be the case. You look at at um, uh, companies like uh, you know uh, ThoughtWorks, Optiva, Edgecase, Lean Dog. Um, you know these companies. Um, you can remain in development for your entire career, mm -hmm. and you can continue to advance in salary and advance in in title. But the recognition is that you know the real value that you bring is as a very skilled developer. Right, and you know. You don't have to jump to management to become more senior. Yes, exactly. And so that really end up with two stacks, a management stack and a development stack. And a development stack, yep. So, so what can you do, now that we get to the problem, what can you do to give yourself that, uh, that, that freedom to, to do bigger and better things but stay a developer? So, um, you know, uh, part of it is, is within a given organization, Sometimes it's it's very difficult to actually affect that change, right? Mm -hmm. if, if the culture is such that you've got to go, that you've got to continue to go up and out of development, yeah. you know what's the old saying: change your organization or change your organization. I mean, sometimes right. sometimes that move is is necessary. Um, so how do you find the right place? So you want to get out there and get into the community, get involved in user groups, um, uh, maybe get involved in public speaking, and and find ways that you can actually get your name out there. Um, and you can learn about other companies and what's going on. So mm -hmm. that's, that's part of the uh, getting together piece you know, of it. Getting together, is, yeah. I know from working with sales teams mm -hmm. that it's, a sales guy's always looking for another job. Not that he wants it, but he's, it's a part of his routine right. to interview, to be conscious of the work opportunities in his space. That's just a normal thing. And it seems like mm -hmm. as in the development or, uh, world, we avoid that like the plague. The interview's the worst thing we could possibly do. Right, right. And, and, it, and I feel mm -hmm. often you see culturally too, if a developer were to admit to his boss that he'd taken an interview anywhere, mm -hmm. he's instantly blackballed, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, you're on your way out, right? Right, and right. Where, I worry about any sales guy that isn't interviewing. Right. Like, I, I expect that from them. That's, a, that's what a professional does. Yeah. But yeah. It, I think we've got to, maybe we have to be quiet about it, but we well, need to be routinely looking. Sales guys are pretty much of a commodity where a developer has a more you know, intimate knowledge of what they're doing that's more, the company's more dependent on them, I think, because of what we were talking about. And they're more dependent on the company. It's a real codependency relationship. Right. right. So get noticed right so get together get together get naked i think was your third one uh, <laughs> we can talk about get naked absolutely so get your mojo then get naked okay, okay get your right. mojo so yeah. getting your mojo is uh is uh kata cohen's um maybe learning a new language it's basically practice right it's 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 a deliberate effort outside of work to continue to hone your skills yeah and to continue to you know to to learn if you're uh, if you're an oo developer then uh and you've been you know working in c sharp then you know what take a look at f sharp sure right you know yeah. w what's in the functional paradigm that um, you know is different and is new for you, yeah. and maybe um, you can you can bring back and actually apply to you know your day to day work. Yeah. Um, and this you know. is not about getting your employer to send you to a class. No, no, no. This is about you no, wanting to is, grow your is, own this skills. This is taking yourself. responsibility yourself. These okay. are things that you yeah. can do, right? That you can do on your own. And there's plenty of resources that are out there. You know, if, if uh, uh, obviously the Ruby Cohens have been out there for quite a while, but now mm -hmm. there's uh, there's Closure Cohens, there's F Sharp Cohens, there's JavaScript, um, there's Python. Uh, so a lot of them are, you know, functional 
mm. oriented, mm -hmm. um, but there's several of them out there. There's a ton of different kata that can be done. Um, you know, the, the, the Prague guys have, have plenty of kata up on their site. You could look at uh, Ruby Quiz. There's a ton of, of things there. Uh, Roy Osharov has some that are really good, string calculator. We haven't heard the word kata on .NET Rocks in a while, maybe since Dr. Uh, uh, Uncle Bob, but uh, these are little practices, little things, little exercises that you can put yourself through that help you understand right. how to solve particular problems with particular patterns and yep. things. Yep. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, and it's just deliberate practice, right? It's mm -hmm. just a, it's a deliberate effort. They're it's not like they're practicing not, scales when yeah, you're... Exactly, yeah. yeah, doing your arpeggios. Arpeggios right. and scales yep. and chord changes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do we need to find the difference between a kata and a cone? Sure, so, so kata is, um, is a, it's a, you know, it's the simple problem you're gonna do over and over again. It's basically that you are burning a particular solution into your autonomic system. Right, so yeah. when and I'm writing different, code, typically in different languages. Different languages, mm. um, you know, and, and, and slightly different problems, but all fairly simple. Now, a Cohen yeah. is, a, is a lesson. It is a life lesson that right. when you are done, you achieve a new level of understanding. Hmm. All right. So the Cohen's were actually put together a little tongue in cheek, the Ruby Cohen's. Uh, when you go through them, it's basically a set, it's a very long set of broken tests. All right. So when you run the test framework, the first, first test fails, and the failure message is something along the lines of, uh, you have many steps to go along the path. <laughs> and then it shows you, you know, what's wrong, right? And then, then you have to go in and actually fix the code to make the test pass, and the next one fails, and it does the same thing. Yeah. Um, so it really, it's, it's, a, um, it's a very self-paced way of learning a language. So it starts off with just, you know, basic data types and starts to get into, um, you know, objects and constructs, and then you start getting into more idiomatic elements of the language. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but it just kind That's of progresses what a you through. Zen it. Cohen is. It's something that forces you to think in a different way. Absolutely. About a particular issue or problem. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I think one of the challenges we've got as programmers is we tend to think in the last language we worked in. Right. Yeah. And often, especially if we're stretching ourselves, we're deliberately working in something that works a different way. Right. And to me, the, the concept of a Cohen really comes to I need to now think the X language, the Ruby way or the F sharp way. Yeah. I mean, the great comparison is C sharp to F sharp mm. yes. because they're radically different ways of thinking. Right, right. But there are things that, so if you look in the, like the Java space, right, there are things um, where uh, studying Ruby, studying Lisp, closure, right? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, maps and folds and, and reduce and all of that stuff um, were things that I'd never really heard of in, in, uh, in my day to day in, in Java. And then I came to understand them and I came to understand kind of how they could be applied and then I discovered that oh hey there's Google collections and there's you know Lambda J and there's so there's libraries that are out there that allow me to do these types of things in my existing tool set right. but until I knew about them I didn't even know that I wanted those you libraries wanted to know that. right and getting back to the career side of this so that exercise going off and exploring these things on your own time you do end up with some skills you bring back to Absolutely. your old language and your old platform but with different ways of thinking right Right, and it provides you new, you know, new potential opportunities. Maybe you discover that that um, you know, you just really love F sharp. Sure. Yeah. Right, and you know, and honestly, functional languages. So, you you see that as an opportunity then, where where you might stumble into something that could further your career. The flip side of that, or the negative side of that, is that you could just get stuck in academic circles and you know stop being productive as a developer. <laughs> right, just keep you know? picking up, picking up. I, picking I interviewed up. a world-famous pianist, Cyrus Chestnut, jazz pianist, a couple of years ago, and he said, and it's the same thing for music. You know, if you want to study Monk or study, you know, uh, Duke Ellington or something, do it, but don't stay there. Yeah. You know, go to something else that's radically different. Right. Always, you know, try to, I think, uh, you know, I'm afraid of, as a developer, just getting pigeonholed in one place. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the keynote this morning, right? What was it, um, you know? Uh, Dr. Norris. Yeah, and yeah. he was in the, the, one, the one quote about, you know, going off into the woods on occasion. Yeah, yes. get off the beat. Get path. off the path, good. Yeah, yeah. Alexander Graham Bell yeah. said that. Sometimes you just got to dive into the woods. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think one of the things to take away from this then is deliberately pick something very different from what you're working in. Yes. Yeah. If you are an OO guy living in the C Sharp or the Java world, yep. you, know, you want to go look functional or yeah. go don't look lose, dynamic. Don't yeah. lose track of the big picture. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting point. All right, so now we're on getting so naked. So now we're getting We're naked. allowed to get naked right. now? Yeah, we can now. get I'm naked. I'm all excited naked. about it. All right, so getting naked is about opening. I personally it. will keep my clothes <laughs> on. <laughs> we're it's, all happier for it. I'm yeah, sure you thank are. You. <laughs> so it's about I. opening the kimono, right? It's about just basically uh, exposing our own vulnerabilities and mm -hmm. admitting, right. admitting when we don't know. Right. Um, you know, uh, being able to actually 
uh, ask for help. Sure. Um, you know, and, and this is something that, that uh, a lot of times we don't do, right? There's a lot of times, especially as developers, you know, we kind of become you know, the go-to guy for, yeah, or, yeah. or gal for, for a very technical problem and right. business comes to us and, and asks and we, you know, absolutely. And, and maybe we don't really know. Maybe mm -hmm. we don't know how we're going to do right. that. And, and there's nothing wrong with being able to say, you know what, I'm not sure, but I can find out. And that's, that's the part of I don't know that I think yeah. is important. It isn't just saying, hmm, I don't know. Not right. my job, yeah, you know. But 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 admitting, hey, I don't know, but I'll go find out. You know, maybe uh, you know if, if I've got a if I got the right kind of environment, I can say, hey, you know what? Can we do a, a one day spike on that and just mm -hmm. kind of, you know, we'll play with the API and see if that's actually possible, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and another element of this is asking for help. Not asking only don't for know, help. but I'm stuck or right. I'm thrashing. Right. right. Being able to actually reach out to you know to your peers or to whomever and say, hey, I'm not really. I, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm stuck in a, in a loop here and I can't seem to figure out how to get out of it. You know, a fresh set of eyes, you know, being able to ask for that help. Being, and owning your mistakes, being able to actually say, hey, you know what? Yeah, I really, uh, you know, I messed that one up. Yeah, that was not a pretty chunk of code I checked in there. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. But, but taking responsibility for it, saying, okay, you know what? I'll take care of that. But, mm -hmm. you know, just, I mean, it's, it's about integrity. It's about, you know, um, yeah, exposing your vulnerabilities, and it's a very difficult and scary thing for us to do. But the truth of the matter is, when we when we when we start doing that, people are actually a lot more receptive to us. Sure, yeah. They're more willing to help. They're more willing to listen to what it is that we right. have to say, right? So you improve your trustworthiness and your street cred a whole yeah. lot by doing yeah. that. Yeah. But isn't there a, there a confidence element in this as well? It's just a, you know, if I'm confident in what I know, that I'm willing to admit what I don't. What know. I don't know, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. it. Does, it I'm speaking more to the, you got, you got naked late in the game here because there was a bunch of things I did first to establish my confidence in what I did Abs now. Right, absolutely. So yeah, absolutely. First, first I, you know, I established myself as, as, as valuable in the role that I'm in and then I worked on, you know, honing my skills and, yeah. you know, and now finally I'm able to say, hey, you know, there's certain things I'm not good at and I'm comfortable being able to do that. Sure. Comfortable being able to ask. And last but not least? Is getting schooled. Getting schooled. Right? Which is really kind of an extension of this, sure. right? So now it's, you know, looking for mentors, um, you know, finding folks that, uh, you know, that you look up to that, you know, can, can offer you guidance and assistance. And part of, part of the whole, the, the, the discussion was just around, um, you know, a lot of these folks are a lot more approachable than one might think, mm -hmm. right? You know, they, so, they've, so they've written books and they're, they're speaking at conferences and, you know, you kind of, uh, a lot of them will answer email. A lot of them will show up to your user group. A lot sure. of them, you know, w want to you know, help to build the community and help to, you know, to bring that next generation of, of you know, professionals through. So uh, in a lot of cases, they're a lot more approachable. And maybe there's a mentor that's, you know, right down the hall from you and in, a, in, you know, the next cubicle or whatever that you yeah. know, maybe you haven't, you know, you haven't reached out to that person yet, right? Um, and then the other part of it is um, doing some teaching yourself. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say yeah. that I've, I've learned so much from teaching. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you know, speaking at it, you know, find a users group or or start a users group, mm -hmm. you know, and 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 pick a topic that you don't know a whole lot about, mm -hmm. but that you're interested in, yeah. and commit to a 30-minute presentation, yeah. you know, a couple of months from now. Trust me, if you want to learn CouchDB and you've been kind of languishing around, making a commitment to a group of 30 people yep. that you're going to stand up in front of them and tell them something about it, mm -hmm. you'll learn it. Yeah, yep. you'll you'll you crank on it and yeah. and think about it very differently. I think this. There's a big difference between thinking about a technology just to solve your problem, right? And another way to think about it to say, how am I going to tell others about this? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it definitely the the act of teaching is a commitment to a technology, but yep. also a commitment to a broad understanding of it. Right. Right. We have a completely different view on it when we have to figure out how are we going to actually impart this knowledge to someone else, and what would they be interested in? So. Do you yeah. do you think this uh, your your general advice for advancing your career? Um, applies to every developer, or do you think that there's a specific type of developer that uh, isn't it isn't going to work for? I th I think that it I think that aspects of it can, um, you know I think that there are folks that who who genuinely um, would have a, have a difficult time speaking, mm -hmm. right? You know, getting up in front of a group and and you know teaching a subject or. Mm -hmm. um, I've definitely found the folks that are better one-on-one, -on -one, that are natural mentors, yeah. terrible on stage. It's mm. just that's different roles, right? Right. right. And, and different natures to that. But I also, I've met plenty of developers that they like what they do. Like they're in a happy place. Yeah. Yeah. I am a specialist in this area. It's what I like to do. And mm. then I go home at night and you know take care of my kids. Right. Right. Yeah. And the only thing I look at with that is is you know is that there's there's some risk involved there. Sure. Right. So um, you know I've been I've been doing this for close to 30 years now and I've watched languages, you know, come and go and mm -hmm. I've watched platforms come and go and I've watched people's career 
effectively, you know, blossom and then wilt away because they, you know, they got very comfortable in a particular space. Right. Right. And, you know, I still, I know a guy that to this day, and nothing against it, writes, you know, Fox Pro for a living. But I was thinking Fox when you were talking yeah, about but it. Yeah. But it is harder and harder yes. and harder yeah. for him to find a job. Sure. Yeah. You know? Um, and it would benefit him, I think. Even, even, even if he didn't move out of that, it would still benefit him to, you know, to learn some of these other languages and some of these other approaches just because there's things there that he can bring back. So, yeah. you know, I think it's, what I'm offering is, hey, here's things that you can try. Yeah. Right? And, um, you know, pick one pick a couple, pick them all, mm -hmm. you know, but, um, you know, they can't, I shouldn't say they can't hurt. Right. <laughs> yeah. It is likely that they won't hurt. Right. And Seems like good, sensible advice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Doc, thank you very much for Absolutely. joining us. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. And we'll thank see, you, you, see you next year, I hope. All right. Yep. Thanks. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who want me to tell you about JustMock, Telerik's mocking tool. And unlike most mocking tools, JustMock can work with non-virtual methods, sealed classes, and static methods and classes, giving you complete control over your code. And of course, you get that great Telerik quality and support. You can read more and download the tool at Telerik.com JustMock. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com Telerik. Hi, this is Carl Franklin. I'm here with Richard Campbell. We're the .NET Rocks guys. We're at Ordev 2010, Malmo, Sweden. And we're here on the stage and talking to Dave Hoover. Hi, Dave. Hi. Dave. And we were just talking before the show here. Uh, you heard the Corey Haynes show we did, talking about did. Uh, apprenticeship and journeyman. And, and you're on a journey yourself right now? Well, I'm calling this part one of my own journeyman tour. I'm, I'm a f close friend of Corey's, and so I'm kind of copying what he did a couple years ago. And... Uh, so last night, so I flew in yesterday uh, into Copenhagen and went directly up to Gothenburg mm -hmm. um, and paired with some people up at eLabs up there, and, uh, which is another small consultancy, um, like mainly doing Ruby. And then this morning I took a train down here and uh, I'm at Oradev. Here you are at Oradev. Yeah. And then in January I'm going to take about three weeks and take a road trip, kind of like Corey did through Ohio, North well, Carolina, Virginia. Let's remind everybody exactly what Corey did. What did he do? It was a sort he took of a pair programming tour. Um, he kind of got got to the end of a contract. He was an independent guy, uh, uh, independent uh, consultant. Got to the end of a contract and was just like, "Hey, I'm out of here. I, I'm I'm gonna go and uh, pair program with people and not get for paid food, for it." Basically, basically he just slept on their couches. Yeah, like we you know we put him up in a hotel I think or he. We, or we paid for his meals when he came to Chicago. Yeah. Right. And, uh, he, and he did that all over, kind of basically from Chicago east. Yeah. And then he did that in, in Europe a little bit too. Mm -hmm. But um, it's just, I mean, the, the name journeyman sort of defines it. You are yeah. traveling to different learning opportunities. Right. And, uh, you know, offering some value. You're obviously helping them write some code. But getting all of these different experiences and yeah. uh, writing different apps. Yeah, and he, the interesting thing for me, and like I work at Optiva, is he came back, or he ended up moving to Chicago, thankfully, to us, because that's where we're from. Uh -huh. and, uh, but he brought all these connections back with him. He connected all these different companies yeah. together. Wow. That, um, uh, we never would have thought that would have happened. We've actually ended up swapping employees between each other. Wow. Really? Uh, basically facilitated by Corey. So this is all about cultivating better developers. Pretty much. It, it, yeah. Not only said, when you said, you know, I basically copied what Corey did, I thought to myself, well, it's worth copying. Not only is it oh, worth yeah. copying. I think more people should do it. I think it may be a model for the way that you, you deal with burned out developers at, at your company. Sure. I mean, you Hopefully like, it never gets to that point. But yeah, I mean, well, for me. Know, it I, happens. Yeah, no, yeah. Developers it, it get does. so focused on one project. At the end of the project, they're like, whew, now what? You know? Well, yeah. now I'd rather flip burgers and write another line of code. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, but go get take a trip. Or just get take, yeah, there's something about going, like for me as a consultant, when my clients are expecting a certain amount of value per hour out of yeah. me, yeah. going and working with somebody else um, when I don't have that pressure, yeah. it provides a whole different value. And are you changing languages and platforms along the way as well? Um, well? We'll see. I mean, right now the places I'm visiting are pretty Ruby friendly. Okay. Um, and that's what I'm most familiar with, but I'm totally, I'm going to be visiting NASA, so who knows what I'll be Yeah, you know, who knows what language there. you'll be working in there. <laughs> Probably Fortran. Um, taking a step back from the journeyman level, 
a little bit more, more about apprenticeship. Sure. So what, is it look, what does an apprenticeship look like to you? Originally, well, I read Pete McBreen's Software Craftsmanship book mm-hmm. back in 2002, um, and that was a real uh, eye-opening kind of experience for me, uh, just in terms of understanding. I felt like it gave me a sense of where I was, right? Because I'm a self-taught developer, um, like most of us, really. And I didn't, yeah, and I didn't really have any like I couldn't really cling to like computer scientist or software engineer. I, right. I didn't feel like I could live up to that. But software craftsman, I could live up to. And he, and he painted this picture of apprentices, journeymen, and masters. And I felt like, okay, I'm an apprentice. And now what does an apprentice do to become a journeyman? And piecing that together was a real helpful thought exercise for me. And then, so I kind of wrote a book about that. Right. About kind of, kind of create your own apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. And but, what's your book called? Uh, apprenticeship Patterns. Apprenticeship so like, Patterns. I was definitely wow. in the like, patterns mode when I wrote yeah. it, or yeah. when, we started, when my co-author, co-author and I started writing it. And uh, so we kind of organized, as a, as a, organized it as a pattern language. So I love the idea. Let's talk through some of these apprenticeship patterns. Sure. So the, the original one, um, which is also in Chad Fowler's Passionate Programmer book, because mm-hmm. um, we were both reading the, blog, uh, the same blog at the same time, is Be the Worst. Uh, yeah, right? be so the least be, skilled person in your yeah, team. Yeah, and so it, it, it comes from Pat Metheny's advice to young musicians, be the I, worst guy I in your band. I was just going to say right? that. Really? It's, I'm it's, in a band right now where right. I feel like I'm the, the, I'm the one who right. needs to move up, up to up. their level. Right. Yeah. And, and it's great. That's like the great... It's great. It's a great learning opportunity. And sure. The, so the, the action I took from that was recognizing that I wasn't the worst where I was, which was ridiculous because I'd only been programming for two years. Right. And I worked myself into a situation where I could leave where I was and go work at ThoughtWorks where I was immediately the worst. Um, <laughs> and It's got to take a certain level of confidence, though, to put yourself in a situation where yeah. you're the beginner. Yeah. I guess, yeah. yeah. Or just desperation. <laughs> like of, of no, real, I guess it's just realizing that like, there's people you want to be as good as or right. want to yeah. approach their greatness. And like the only way you're going to do that is by working with great people. Sure. Right? Um, you're just not going to come from reading a book and like just toiling away by yourself. No, yeah. be the so, worst. Um, another, another one is uh, expose your ignorance, mm-hmm. um, which is real counterintuitive, especially for consultants who are trying to justify their hourly rates yeah. um, mm-hmm. and ne- trying to look super comp- competent all the time. Yes. But in reality, if you can um, swallow your pride and your fear and actually expose when you don't know something, ask a stupid question mm-hmm. um, that actually exposes the learning process to your, to your client or your boss or your coworkers and shows them um, that you can let them see you learning. Yeah, I've if, said it many instead, times. Instead of like, yeah, I know what that means and go look it up later and kind of yeah. hide the whole process from yeah. them. Um, yeah. I've, ta- I've said that many times on our show, in order to be a really good developer, you have to sort of slay your ego. It's a sort of right. very uh, Eastern... Zen kind of thing yeah. that you really have I did, to I definitely did some it. Zen reading in, yeah. as I was writing this. Um, and yeah, it, it just, you can get away without doing that, but it definitely facilitates learning by doing Things that. Things go faster when you right. make yeah. it apparent what you need to know. Exactly. And when your ego get gets in the way yeah. of so much learning mm-hmm. yeah, all the time. So that, yeah, that's, I mean, that's two of the, I think, 20 something patterns wow. in the book. So. And they seem more like tenets. You know, our, yeah, our I mean, we phrased them in such a way like, so there's like a problem or a context, yeah. you know, f- to each of them where it, it might not make sense to be the worst in certain situations yeah. or it might not make sense to expose your ignorance in certain situations, but that's like the, the context, the problem and the solution. Uh, uh, I see. Structure. So the idea being if we can work our way through all these patterns, this brings you to the journeyman level? That's the idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like it. it it's a set cool. of practices to say, Basically. Can, have I done I, these I things? I was trying to kind of fill the space that was like pre-pragmatic programmer, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Like that's the, the subtitle of that is journeyman to master. How do you get from apprentice to journeyman? That's right. kind of what I was going after. It's funny how so. the, the brain works, you know, the, the left brain person who needs to have a set of steps to follow, I think would really enjoy this book and might be even be a challenge for the right brain person. Who, uh, yeah, I don't know. Who sort that's of feels a, their way through. It's, it's, I, I wouldn't say it's overly structured. I'm definitely right brain. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's a net, it's like a pattern language. So it's networked. There's no like, there isn't any like, okay, now you're a journeyman. Like yeah, you've yeah, applied yeah. seven of the nine patterns. Right. You know, but, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's been interesting watching people resonate with the I guess, yeah, the question the is when do you feel like you're a journeyman? When is it time to yeah. go on those journeys? From, oh yeah. I mean, well, for me, 
I don't necessarily link journeys and journeymen, right? Right, but th that's like a practice of a journeyman, mm -hmm. which I hopefully be will become something that everyone does for at least part of their time yeah. as a journeyman, right? Um, but for me, I started realizing that I was kind of transitioning out of being an apprentice, probably about five years into being a programmer, mm -hmm. about halfway through my time at ThoughtWorks, and um, it was just when I started feeling more of a sense of responsibility for the project and for the people like the, the newbies. Right. Apprenticeship is kind of a time when you're a little more selfish and you're just trying to get yourself up to the next yeah. level. Yeah. yeah. Um, when so you find yourself with the bandwidth to put a hand out and yeah, help exactly. others. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that was like my signal. I don't necessarily have... There, there are left brain people out there that want like, okay, how do I yeah. know when I'm a when master will the or switch something? On? And those labels are helpful to me just for myself to know like sure. where I feel like I'm at right now. So you quoted Pat Metheny. Are you a guitar player? No. Well, actually, uh, I, I, I could play a little bit of that guitar, but yeah. I taught myself during a semester in college okay. and never got any further. <laughs> so okay. I could just kind of pluck a little bit. But, but you sort of seem sort of drawn to the, to the artsy side of... Uh, I am. Well, my, my, history, my background is actually in psychology. Okay. I was, a, I was a therapist before I was a programmer. Hmm. No kidding. So I definitely have more of a touchy-feely. <laughs> I'm uh, reading a lot about Jung right now. Oh, cool. Are you, did you study Jung? A little bit, like intro. Okay. Like well, I was a talk family about therapist. Patterns, is, you know. he is, I, I just remember like archetypes, archetypes and stuff right. like that. Which are essentially patterns of the psyche that That's balance true. out each other. And usually we fall towards one spectrum or the other and sort of bringing everything back in right. the middle. It's interesting. I'll apply that to software somehow, <laughs> someday. I'm sure you will. Not so today. It, we, always, we always do that. <laughs> Someone tells me a few months from now, I need to have you back, talk about your experiences uh, yeah, yeah, traveling to. and paraprogramming. Yeah, I, it's going to be interesting. I'm going to bring my daughter, actually. For, wow. she's, she's 11, um, and she wants to be a photographer, so she's going to come and, like, Corey was always, like, interviewing people and, like, with yeah. his, like, you know, he put the yeah. video camera down and video of them, and I saw I'll actually have somebody holding the camera. There you go. Um, so that should be good. When you do these pair programming for, you know, will pro pair program for food and shelter kind of thing, is it what they want to do? Absolutely. Always? Yeah, you're just showing up and saying, how can I help? Yeah, so they're Pretty usually much. working through a problem that yeah, you I mean, I did a, just a tiny bit yesterday because I just wanted to say that I pair programmed up in Gothenburg. Right. Yeah. So I sat down next to one of the eLabs developers and just you know, hey, what are you up to? Like, yeah. just ask some questions. Wanted to get a sense for, like, the tools that he used. Right. And he was doing a big data migration, so I just kind of watched over his shoulder for a while. Yeah. But, um, Interesting. Yeah. Well, Dave, thank you very much for talking to us. No problem. Uh, Dave Hoover is our guest, and uh, thanks for sharing your thoughts with us. Thanks a lot. All right, Dave. It's good meeting you guys. Hi, this is Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. We are for the .NET Rocks guys. We're here at Ordev Live, Ordev 2010 in Malmo, Sweden, on the stage with Bill Pugh. Hi, Bill. Hi. You are from the University of? University of Maryland. Okay. Uh, near DC. And, and you're a professor there? Yeah, I'm a professor there. I've also uh, um, done a fair bit of consulting with Google over the past couple of years. Oh, wow. great. And you, so you teach computing science? Yes. Now the, this is an interesting business, teaching computer science, just that the, you know, growing new developers. Uh, are your classes busy these days? Are you getting a lot of students? Um, yeah, they are. So after uh, um, the 2001 um, bubble burst, yes. right, student enrollment dropped a lot. Yes. Um, and it took a couple of years, but it's now surging again. Really? And, Good. Uh, um, I also noticed that the economic downturn somewhere in 2008 seemed to drive student populations up as well. Um, it was already going up right. before then. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was some sort of question w as to whether or not um, all the people used to think they wanted to go work for Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers yes. right. would decide that the computer science sounded like a better future for them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and actually, the thing which is a little harder to get, and I think we're doing good on, is there's the absolute numbers. But in some ways, the really important question are the best students. Right. Or the very good students yeah, the, coming the, the to The best and brightest, where are they going? What are they learning? Right. Well, you know, it's not too easy to, to see why people flock to IT because that was one of the only sectors of the economy that actually thrived during the downturn. It thrived reasonably well. I, yeah. I, I mean, I know a lot of companies that went into flat headcounts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, so and we know some companies who just went through the roof right. during, the, during the crunch. Right, right. Yeah. Works both ways. Yep. Mm -hmm. So... 
the process of teaching programming, I mean, we've been, all been programming, I imagine, so long, I don't remember how I learned it. Right. Uh, are you generally having students come in that already know how to program or already into computing before they, they come to the class? Um, a lot of don't. Right. I, I mean, it's actually one of, I mean, some come in having done some, some come in having to, having done some programming that we need to get them to unlearn. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, one of the biggest challenges I find in the classroom at all levels is the range of student ability. Right. Not only how much they know when they come in the classroom, but their ability to move through the material. So, so that's a big challenge. There is yeah. a way of thinking that I think takes time for the, the sort of switch to flip and you think the way that, that programming works and, and suddenly things come a lot faster. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, hmm. sometimes the switch happens. Some, it's just natural for some people. Right. Some people have real difficulty with it. Yeah. I got a question for you. Yeah. Do you see a correlation between uh, musical ability and programming uh Musical ability and programming uh, aptitude. Aptitude, good, good. That's the word. Um, so, I don't know about sort of in the large because I don't know about sort of like the music talents of right. most of the undergraduates. Right. Um, I know in my um, PhD program that quite a number of the people who were getting a PhD in at Cornell with me were involved with music. And right. actually, it was one of the common... At Cornell, you needed to minor in something. Mm. And I knew quite a number of people who had minors in music. Interesting. Yeah. And, I mean, historically, a lot of people have documented the connection between music and math. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, it's funny. Math being so absolute and music being not very absolute. Well, both being very abstract. They right. only really live in our brains. Mm -hmm. right, they right. don't exist. Right. They're all mythical. Yeah. So what are you teaching uh, computer science students? Where do you start? Well, um, so in terms of me personally or mm -hmm. in the curriculum? So I teach um, typically two undergraduate courses. One, which is technically the CS2 course, the second programming course in the right. sequence. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, CS2 has been the data structures course. All but right. there's always sort of this question nowadays, that, well, do people really need to learn all the ins and outs of how to implement a binary tree and a linked list and so forth. One of and my questions, which is how much stuff gets taken off the curriculum. Right. Yeah. Um, so it, I, I sort of view the course as one of its primary goals is to teach the students about abstraction. Right. Yeah. Right. And students should, at a minimum, they should be good consumers of data abstractions and data structures. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, the number of fancy data, and they should know some data structure techniques. Mm. Right. right, but knowing a big library of them is not so much of an issue because right. now most days people use um, a lot of data structures. Right. But actually, one of the in general things, anytime we can take something off the table, it's great. Right. Yeah. Because when you look at computer science now to computer science 20 years ago, mm. the number of concepts that we sort of people want students to know. Right. Security, concurrency, right. distributed coding, mm. on and on and there on. There are a lot of big ideas you need to work on that it's nice to be able to get rid of linked lists and focus on the uh, higher topics. Do some linked lists, but like balanced binary trees, yep. right. maybe yeah, not. Yeah. So um, I teach that course, and then I also teach a senior level course um, whose title is um, Programming Language Technologies and Paradigms. It's mm. sometimes known as the deliberately ambiguous course. <laughs> um, because the thing is, once you put a course on the course catalog, yep. it's a big deal to change the course catalog description. Okay. So you so, left it ambiguous, so you had some flexibility in curriculum? Right. Clever. Right. So we, um, typically, it's object-oriented programming in more depth. When we first, this course is like 10 years old. Right. And so now a lot of that has been moved into the earlier curriculum. So object-oriented programming, design patterns, um, concurrency and distributed programming are the things that sort of get done at some level mm. um, every semester and mm -hmm. each professor will d throw in a, something a little extra that they want to teach. Um, I, last time I taught it, I did some things with um, doing web applications. Nice. So. I, think, I mean, you talk about 10-year-old curriculum. It's one of the challenging parts of this, is producing developers that can be productive in modern development circles with, uh, with current curriculum. Like, how do you keep that stuff up to date? Well, I mean, you know, I, I envy the math teachers who get to use the same calculus um, right. notes that they've been using for the past 20 years. Well, Einstein, or Einstein, uh, um, 
Newton got it right, and what more do you need? Right. You're right. done. Although there is a certain repetitiveness to the... You know, I got to tell you about my calculus teacher in college. He looked like he wanted to be anywhere but in the classroom because it, it was almost as if his attitude was, no matter how many times I say this, you idiots won't get it. So I'm just going to go through the motions and say it again. You know, it's like you've done it a million times and it was no longer fun for him. <laughs> this is the way he was. You know, I'm like exaggerating with my arms. Right. But yeah, and, and I can't imagine that uh, in, a, in a course like that where new technologies always come and go, that you're always, you know, got something new to chew on. Well, the, the new technologies come and go and it's also that a lot of the technologies are challenging enough that you always figure that, oh, you know, that was sort of okay, but I want to change it, I want to adopt it, yeah. and so forth. We've right. got a project which I've now used twice and will probably need a couple more iterations to get right, where the students basically implement parts of MapReduce from scratch. Wow. Yeah. So to really teach students about distributed programming, concurrent programming, um, they actually build the components where they actually build the central node and all the compute serves and jobs get sent out and we have the compute nodes blow up in mid-computation mm. and you need to recover from that right. and hey, so forth. You mentioned some uh, technology that you've developed to help teach programming to kids. Right. So the, um, this is the Marmoset system. Oh. Um, this is something we actually now use in most of our undergraduate curriculum for doing um, grading of programming assignments. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and so traditionally the way programming projects were graded for functional correctness is you hand out the project description, um, students go to work on it, you ha and typically you'll hand out the project description, some sample input, expected output. Mm. Students go to work on it anytime they want to up till the deadline, they can submit it, but it just goes into an electronic Dropbox right. where nothing happens to it. And after the project deadline, you give a tarball of all the submissions to the TA, mm. and he takes them and he runs them against the sample test data plus some other test data, which maybe wasn't made up until after the project deadline. Right, okay. And you get grades to the students maybe a week after the project was due, at which point the students are already well on to the them. next thing. Yeah. yeah. So this is the way it's typically done, and it's not a great solution. So what we do in the Marmoset project is it starts out the same. You have, here's the project description. Here are some test cases. Um, typically, we'll use a unit test framework right. for whatever language students are doing things for the public test cases. Mm. Whenever students want, they can submit. And when they submit, then they can go to a web server and see the result of compiling and testing their code on the web server. Mm -hmm. Now, this is useful. It's the same test cases that they already have, but it's useful in and of itself for one thing because we're actually testing it on the server. And sometimes students will write their code in a way that works correctly on their laptop but not on the machine. Doesn't work anywhere testing. else. Right. Um, it's also useful that we can do things like do code coverage or static analysis, dynamic testing mm -hmm. on the server. Yeah. Stuff that students could do on their own system, but particularly for like freshmen, it might be hard for them to get set up. Right. Um, but then the really interesting thing starts coming into play. Now, all the things I'm about to tell you have all sorts of dials and knobs that we can adjust all sorts of parameters. Mm -hmm. But if the student submits something, which passes all of the public test cases, then they get an option. Would you like to perform a release test of this submission? Huh. And the student says, yes, I'm ready to perform a release test. Maybe this is the poker game project. And I'll come back and say, okay, we ran the release tests. There were 12 release tests. You passed seven, but failed five. Right. The names of the first two tests you failed are test full house and test four of a kind plus three other tests that we're not even going to tell you the names of because we only tell you the names of, of the first two tests. Okay. Now students can think, oh, full house, I think I know I did wrong. Change the code, resubmit. Right. Well, they can do that. They can resubmit as often as they want. Wow. But performing a release test requires a release token. Students are given a limited number of tokens, perhaps two, and they regenerate 24 hours after being used. Is that so because you really want them to look through the code instead of using the compiler want, as a... We want them to think about what goes wrong. We tell them if you get back something right. from the release test, first thing you do is you try to replicate a test 
mm. that demonstrates the failure. Right. So that then you can change the code mm. and know that the next time you do a release test, you'll get past that test and find out the names of the other tests you're failing. Mm. Um, also, another advantage of this system, it encourages students to start early. Yeah. The earlier they get started, the more, the more opportunities they've got. They have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. Students need incentives to start early. Right. We yeah. all do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, it, it, so, I mean, that's one of the reasons for limiting the number of opportunities the students have for testing. Right. Right. I mean, otherwise, you just figure that if you just gave them an unlimited number of opportunities, they'll keep hacking at it until it passes. They'll keep hacking Brownie in motion right. until they mm. pass. Yeah, they'll get an infinite <laughs> number of monkeys working for them. Right. <laughs> um, but Brownie this has motion. a couple of other advantages. Sometimes we'd find in you know, previous systems that students would make a mistake in, or they would misunderstand something, and their code would just fail on a whole bunch of test cases right. yeah. that they wouldn't know about until after the project was due. Yeah. Now students do something, they, hey, you're failing all the release tests. It's like, well, get your butt in to see the TA. Yeah, get some help. Get some help. Right. Uh, one of the things which is interesting, we run all the tests as soon as the code is submitted. Mm -hmm. So the instructors can pull up a scoreboard where they see how everybody is doing in all the test cases. Right. And you can often find out, hey, people are having a lot of problems with this test. Why is that? Maybe mm. it's because the spec is ambiguous. Right. And so mm. forth. So, so you get an opportunity to tune your curriculum by the success of the, of the students. Well, right. So, so you, you find out some things about the test cases. One of the other things we found is that sometimes some of the good students would get to work on the project early. They'd try to complete it like a week before the deadline. They'd come to your office and say, hey, I'm pretty sure my code is correct. Yeah. Will you look at this and test? And your test I... is broken. Right. right. And sometimes they were right. Oh, wow. Um, huh. But it's, it, it seems, A, it feels closer to the way we're living today in development with, right. with strong test case models right. and, and, and iterative testing of your, of your right. code, but right. also, like I said, encouraging to start early and to improve things overall, much well, more interaction. Right, in, well, and also, and the students ha have, well, they don't particularly like this, but it's realistic. When it gets down to the last day, mm. and their code wasn't working when they ran the release test yesterday, right. and they have two more opportunities to do a release test yes. before the final project deadline, Yep. Yeah, that's starting to feel like real software development. Right, yeah, <laughs> here yeah. we are. Right. We're gonna have to ship. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, um, and we can also do things like we can monitor code coverage, and we can also you know, make getting certain levels of code coverage with their own tests mm -hmm. part of the grading criteria. We can do things like say that we will give you back more information about the release tests depending on whether or not the code was also covered in a student test. So if you don't yeah. have student tests, we won't even tell you the name of the tests. But if the code was covered with a student test, then we'll tell you the names of the tests that fail. Interesting. And so forth. And then the other thing that we're working on adding to that now is doing code reviews. So all the things I talked about before is based around functional correctness. Right. But we also want to add um, code reviews, because that's a very important thing. Start talking about code quality? Code quality, mm -hmm. right. Because sometimes mm -hmm. you'll find that students, they wound up getting the code to work, but when you look at the code, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so some of this is just having a really good way for TAs to do a code review. You don't mm. want them to print it out and have to scribble it out right. or something like that. So we're going to do something which is similar to some of the good online code review systems like used at Google and so forth, mm -hmm. where you bring up a view of the source code in the browser, you click on a line of code, a little box opens up, you can type in a line of code, you can get an answer key, like things that are supposed to be in the code that you can like drag to various places where students did them and mark them. So this is useful, although I got to admit that having TAs go do good reviews of all the students' code, that's a lot of work if yeah. you've got a big class. Um, and also sometimes I'm not 100% um, confident in the quality of uh, the comments that the TAs give. They're typically grad students, they're right. not special mm. programmers. So one of the other things we want to do is to be able to assign to students that, okay, the assignment is now done, you have to go review two other students' code. Interesting, yeah, it's a good right. idea. Yeah. Um, so, and th that way you not only get comments from two other students about your code, but you have to go and look at two other students' code. Right. Um, and in some ways I sort of feel a little bit better about that. For one thing, when you get comments from other students, you know to take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. I'm a little <laughs> bit worried that when students get comments from a TA, TA. they'll take it as the word of God, yes. right, right. and maybe they shouldn't. But I think a lot of the value will be when a student who really struggled with the project looks, looks at someone else's code. code and says, oh, I could have done that so much yeah. easier. And we're still working this out. We might try to do some it, things where we try to figure out 
well, you know, whose code got the best comments, and then we'll discuss it in class. Sure. Well, and it's a shared learning opportunity. Right. Be, everybody's equally committed to the problem. <laughs> They're all trying to build that project as well, so they know what was hard, what was easy for them. Right. You can certainly look at how other people have done it, and, uh, it, and probably going to be a little more generous in general about you know, how they interpret that. But learning to do code review, that's a skill too. Yeah. And well, a useful one. Yeah, you know, it's certainly one of the... Um, Big skills when you get out into industry. Out in the so world, forth. yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, one of the other things that um, I do is a sort of little project to start getting students ready for the real world, typically, is I'll tell them, um, as one of your projects, you must make a contribution to an open source project. Nice, wow. Um, I tell them, it can be as simple as like going in and, you know, finding a one-line change that you have to change to fix a bug mm -hmm. or something like that. And for right. a lot of these students, it's like, oh, okay, but in order to do this, I need to download the code, I need to get it to build with Maven, I need right, to figure right. out how to create a patch, how to create an entry in a bug tracker. Yeah. Right. The fact that they only changed one line of code is that's yeah, that's not, that's not the actual exercise. It's the process. Right. It's the process of actually being involved in a in an open source project. Well, right. Yeah. Bill, it's uh, you know just watching your face light up when you talk about teaching and your students. I can tell you really truly love what you do and yeah. and, and thank you for for teaching the next generation of programmers. Yeah out there, and it's been great to talk to you. Okay, great. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Bill Pugh. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.